Hey there, everybody. Welcome to Up All Night and Are You Afraid of the Dark podcast. My name is Cortland, and with me today is Brandon. How you doing, Brandon? Hey, I'm doing good, Cortland. Awesome. We also have a very special guest, one of the directors from Are You Afraid of the Dark, director of some of your favorite episodes, including Laughing in the Dark, Full Moon, and Ghastly Grinner, Mr. Ron Oliver. How you doing today, Ron? Hey, I'm well. Uh, thanks for the very special guest. I feel like it's a very special episode of Blossom, you know, where... <laughs> <laughs> we reference the Blossom all the time, so we know what Seriously. you're talking about. <laughs> For a show that I've never seen, we reference it all the time. So we are here to do an interview with you, Ron, uh, talking about Are You Afraid of the Dark? Yes. Are you ready to answer some of our silly questions? I am beyond ready. All right, awesome. We've been working on our Instagram, too, from our fans. They have some questions for you as well, and we'll, we'll get into all that. Great. You know, one of the things that I've always been wondering with you is how you got into writing and directing in the first place. Um, well, uh, the short version is I was a magician. And so and I'd always loved film. Even as a kid, I had, you know, eight millimeter camera and so forth. Um, that's film talk for those of you who don't understand what eight millimeter would mean. And um, uh, but I was a magician. So I used to, you know, film magic stuff and uh, oh, cut okay. to many, many years later. And I went to work in uh, club, uh, for Club Med, a company called Club Med in the Caribbean. I was doing magic shows. When I came back from there, I didn't really know what I was going to do. And I thought I'll write a script about the life at Club Med, what it was like to work there as somebody who was, you know, a 21-year-old shaggy, blonde-headed goofball <laughs> working suddenly in a place. Because I traveled from, I lived up in northern Ontario, Canada. And suddenly I'm in the Caribbean. I spent a year of my life in a G-string with a key around my neck and what was that like you know so I, I wrote this script and I sent the script around to um, a few production companies just like honestly in a manila envelope I sent it out cold to like five different companies in Toronto and uh, two of them bit one of them wanted me to come as a writer a development writer the other one wanted to option the script um, for you know like a couple thousand bucks but the, the company that wanted me to stay as a writer were the ones I went with because that made the most sense to me and so suddenly I was, you know, 24 and I was writing uh, movies, uh, developing movies at this company in Toronto, which was like what I had wanted to do my whole life. And suddenly I got to do it. Um, and, and I did. So that, that's how it sort of started. And then I wrote a script called The Haunting of Hamilton High that uh, eventually was uh, made and called um, Hello, Mary Lou, Prom Night 2. Yeah, I was going to ask, is that what your inspiration was from, from the Caribbeans? <laughs> It's funny. Well, I, you know, I just, I loved horror movies when I was in the, I'd never forget this. When I was, uh, when I was there, I was on the Island of Martinique for a while and I had some books and one of the books was Michael Weldon's book, Psychotronic Encyclopedia of Film, which you probably know of. And, and if you don't, I highly recommend it. I might have to check it out. Oh, yeah. it's a brilliant book. And it was all these great horror schlocky exploitation movies from back in the day. And I love that book. It's like a Bible. And I read that thing and kind of understood, um, you know, the structure of, of films and how to make a movie make sense and and you know I, I took to it from the outside in I I wasn't uh, trained by any stretch of the imagination I learned movies just from watching movies so that's awesome honestly I'm the guy I'm the one that when they talk about well the best way to learn is by you know watching movies and doing it you know yeah. uh, it's I've got friends who were many of the filmmakers that I have come to know and befriend over the years are much the same way. We none of us have went to film school particularly, and I have a, a friend named Rennie Harlan who um, is a director. He made um, Cliffhanger and Die Hard Two and and all that stuff. And and uh, okay. we were talking one day. He comes out for Christmas all the time, and we were talking one day about that very thing. And we had 
agreed that we learned film from reading the books that we used to buy at Larry Edmonds Bookshop on Hollywood Boulevard in, in Hollywood. And that, that that was really the best way to do it. Like you read the book, you watch the movies, you absorb all the information that way, and then you go off and you make your first film. You make all the mistakes in your first movie. And that's one of the great things about, <laughs> about that experience, about my first film, was I got to direct it um, uh, after the fact because the original director did a very nice job, but the movie wasn't scary enough. So they came back to it and they gave myself and, and the editor time to recut the film. And I learned the mistakes I made as a writer in the editing of that film and the stuff I didn't need and the stuff that I overdid and, and all that stuff. So I learned that. And then we went out for 10 days and we reshot 10 days worth of that movie and I got to direct it. So it was the first directing I ever did. And, you know, it's, it was a trial by fire, but you also learn so much and then you're kind of prepared. And then eventually you're me at LAX pushing a grocery cart with all of your, like your film in the cans. We used to do that to take it to the film markets and you're going through the airport with this cart full of movie that you made, you know, your first film and you're like, Oh my God. And they gave us, we had four and a half million bucks. We made the movie. And then my, the very first screening of the film was at the Alfred Hitchcock theater on the old Warner lot in Hollywood, not too much pressure. And there you are, you know? And so suddenly you're like, okay, sink or swim. So that's kind of how it all started. And then the movie came out in America and it came out in Canada at the same time. And I was living up in Canada and um, it came out in Canada first, actually. It was released there first. And the reviews were scathing and horrendous and they hated me and they hated my family and they hated everything I stood for. And I was standing at the photocopy machine of the production office where I was writing because I had a couple more scripts with them in development. And I was standing the, in the, in the uh, back when we had photocopiers and um, uh, fax machines. And I glanced down and this is like, we had this big party for the movie. And then the next day the reviews came out and like every newspaper in Canada hated my guts. And I glanced down at the fax machine and out came this review from the LA times, dear Kevin Thomas, bless him, came this review and it said, uh, hello, Mary Lou Prometheus. It was a blue velvet of high school horror movies. And that was the leading line of the review. And it just got better from there. And I stood there and looked down and I, I honestly, I can remember it to this day. And I walked down to the office and said, I guess I'm going to pack up this week and move to Los Angeles because I'm not going to stay in a country that thinks I'm a jerk anymore. And of course, then, <laughs> then I get, I moved to LA, uh, you know, I get a deal to do some writing down there. And, I, and the very first project that I go back to Canada to do was Are You Afraid of the Dark? The very, the, the, the first script for it, DJ sent it to me and I read it in a coffee shop on Hollywood, on Sunset Boulevard, no, Santa Monica Boulevard because I lived in West Hollywood. Read it in the coffee shop, and I thought, oh, I could do something with this. And that was the tale of the Phantom Cab. Awesome. Okay. Oh, wow. You know, I was going to save this question for, like, one of our last ones, but uh, do you have any advice for any listeners or, you know, podcast editors <laughs> about getting in writing or directing? Should I just send a whole bunch of like, yeah. cold things can you, everywhere? Can you just send things places <laughs> yeah, anymore? Yeah, just randomly. How it works? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny because, I mean, one guest asked that question a lot, and – I was lucky in a very specific time in the world, and this is like the mid-80s, and video was still a big force. Um, people were making movies knowing that they had a back end, they could get a video release and, and, and make money off of it, you know, and so, so there were chances were being taken on people like me. Um, mm -hmm. And a producer named Peter Simpson, uh, who was in Toronto, at, had a company there called Northstar. Uh, Peter passed away a few years ago, but he was the guy who essentially rolled the dice and said, I'm going to give this guy a shot. And I think that mindset 
back then was not that usual. It was it was rather an unusual thing. Um, but I, in terms of, of finding your way now, uh, it's always the same. If you have a great script, people will come to your door. It's always that. Okay. If you have a great script, and, and it comes right down to the script. As much as writers don't get a lot of respect in Hollywood, but at the same time, that's the thing that starts the machine. Like, there's nobody's going to start production unless they have a great script, or at least a good script, and then you know you can you know work with it. But it's got to be. It's always a script, and and that's the thing that you can invest in without spending a lot of money. It's just time and and sweat and hopefully talent. So okay. that's how I would do it. And I I think there's I mean there's a great deal of uh, a great deal to be said for um, the iPhone movie making business. I mean, a lot of people make films now. And there was a time when you were a filmmaker, you had to have a film, like you had to make something and be a filmmaker. But now pretty much everybody assumes that they're filmmakers as long as they can hold an iPhone camera. But there really, really is a lot more to it. And and I think that, you know, not to sound like the old guy in the mountain going, well, are you kidding? But <laughs> I mean, honestly, we have the, the democracy of film has developed to a point now where Anybody makes a movie, and it has cheapened the marketplace considerably in that respect. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of, you know, it just, and I love horror movies, so in the horror market, you know, they, they'll give you a couple million bucks, maybe, to make a horror movie. Usually these days, they give you like three or $400,000 to go make a horror picture, because they know they'll get back maybe a million bucks, and that's a decent profit margin on something like that. But oh, okay. though people will take chances if you have a, a solid script that you can make for that kind of money, knowing that, like, horror will always have a back end. But honestly, I, I mean, everybody and their dog is a filmmaker now. Everybody, uh, everybody's a director. Everybody is a, a screenwriter because they'll and they'll tell you, "Well, I'm a filmmaker." Well, yeah, I mean, in theory you are, <laughs> but until you've actually sat down with your script, figured it out, and made a movie with with actors and and you know made something, I I just think that there's a different there's a, a bar, a fairly low bar right now in terms of. Uh, what's being made and called a film and yeah. you know i think i think that's the danger of it all because what's happened is the pond is full of crickets now and you've got trying to get yourself heard through that mess these days mm-hmm. has got to be incredibly difficult you know i know exactly what you're talking about you know as a po- i know it's not quite the same scale but as a podcaster i mean somebody can just say hey you want to watch are you afraid of the dark and make a podcast about it i mean yeah there's there's hundreds of thousands of podcasts out there and doing the marketing and and all that like I totally get it it completely resonates with me I understand 100 percent yeah and it, and it's funny because I don't want to sound like a guy you know trying to keep people from living their dreams because that's horrible <laughs> right 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 but um but at the same time th- there's more to it than just you know uh, um, running about with an iPhone and uh, yeah. and and doing that so so I don't know I mean it, it, the um, the medium has changed so dramatically, and yet at the same time, I just watched a movie this morning while I was on the elliptical. Ugh, the elliptical. Um, uh, <laughs> I was. They yeah. put one in my hotel room because I was under quarantine for two weeks because I came to Canada. So I got an elliptical and weights and a bar in my room. I was, I'm a happy guy. I was like, give me two more days of quarantine. I'm not done. Um, but they. Uh, uh, I was on there. I was watching a movie called Down a Dark Hall. The movie's really terrific and it's beautifully produced. Rodrigo Cortez directed it, and it's gorgeous-looking film, and Uma Thurman doing an occasional accent. Um, but um, it's a very, very solid piece of work, but it's also incredibly classic. It's like, you know, mm-hmm. girls at a haunted boarding school. You don't get more retro than that. And But I watched the movie, and I was thinking, this is a great, beautiful 
horror film. And it's on Netflix with, you know, 15 other horror movies that look kind of the same and another 100 horror movies that you're like, why is this even on, oh, yeah. you know, cellular oh, yeah. or on, on digits? So that's the hard, that's the problem with it is that, you know, a great film like that, a classically beautiful, perfect film like that. It really is a wonderful film. At the same time, you've got this other junk and, and you have to wade through the junk to get to the good stuff. So Okay. Well, how did you end up getting into Are You Afraid of the Dark? DJ saw, um, I did the sequel to Prom 2, which this may surprise you, was called Prom 3. Uh, oh, Prom Night 3. Okay. Yeah. Um, and it was uh, a pretty tongue-in-cheek version of the story that I'd wanted to tell in Prom Night 2. So it was sort of like, a, I would say a rehash. It was sort of the Faustian legend, you know. Um, the prom queen comes back and she gives the guy his fondest wishes and all he's got to do is bury the bodies, you know, that kind of story, a classic tale. And, uh, uh, DJ saw that and saw the sense of humor inherent in it and said that, that he wanted to, uh, have me read the script. He wanted to meet me and read the script for the show and see if I wanted to do it. And I went to his place. He had this great place down in, uh, Laguna beach. I think he and his wife and it was this great, um, like an Ewok village kind of uh, uh, place <laughs> and went there and, and he showed me the pilot, which was the tale of the twisted claw. And they weren't going to run the pilot as the opening episode of the series. Um, I, I guess he felt it wasn't strong enough. So he said, you know, I want to find somebody who can, who can knock this out of the park for us to start the whole thing running. And so I met with him and then I met with um, uh, Jay Mulvaney from Nickelodeon at the time and uh, William Castle's daughter, basically. And okay. and uh, met with them, and then we uh, talked about it a bit, and then I was off to the races, and went up there and started work. Actually, actually, the first day of shooting of Are You Afraid of the Dark? The series was disastrous. Um, <laughs> I because I got there, you have to drive yourself to these things usually. I don't drive myself anymore. I got a driver now, man. I'm too old. Um, but at the time, you drive yourself, and traffic in Montreal is horrible. So I remember leaving the hotel and thinking, okay, I'm half an hour to get the location should be fine. And it took me an hour to get there. So I was late the first day of the entire series, of my first day in the series. I was late. You know, I'm working with the, the crew and the actors. And I was a features guy. So I didn't really understand the pace of television, first of all. But also, there's a, there was a sensibility to TV crew that was quite different than a feature crew. And it didn't, well, the first day was horrible. And I, I didn't love it. And it wasn't working. And, and um, you know, I, they wanted me to push harder and go faster and all that. So... I finish up that first day. I'm thinking, well, I'll do this episode and I'll go back and I'll go, I'll go back to the movie business. And, uh, the next morning, um, I, the, the, one of the producers, Gary Cohen, who's eventually became one of my best friends. Gary says, uh, uh, we need to talk. And it's like, look, this is yours. This, this show can be yours. You've, you've got these, you know how to do this, but you have to do this and this and this. So the next day, the network saw the rushes from the first day and all the problems seemed to suddenly disappear. And it was like, nope, this is great. We love it. Keep doing what you're doing. And that was the end of that. And, and we uh, never discussed it again. And it was, it was interesting. It was an interesting way to start that experience. But, but occasionally, I'd get slapped occasionally. Um, uh, there'd be you know, a script maybe that would come in that I would think was not up to snuff. And I was usually pretty vocal about it. And I remember DJ and I had a chat once about it. He says, you, don't have to say, you can't say it in front of people. Um, you know, it's like, it's like, you know, don't, when, when company's over, don't yell. So, uh, <laughs> right, right. you know, there's, a, I think one of those, and then, um, tale of the full moon, actually DJ told me just, just a while ago, and we got together for the 25th anniversary thing they did. And uh -huh. he told me that, uh, full moon 
was the only one of the series that got banned. That episode was banned what? in the UK really? because uh, it had uh, kids breaking and entering a house. And at the time, they were having a really big problem with that. And it's funny because, you know, that show, that particular episode was so clearly in an alternate universe, like so obviously a, a tongue-in-cheek take on all of it that it never occurred to me that it would have been a problem. So, you know. Yeah. I feel like kids are breaking into houses all the time on Are You Afraid of the Dark? Feels like that, doesn't <laughs> yeah. it? Yeah, I don't know. that. I, I imagine there was some punishment they all got, whereas our guys never got punishment. So, I mean, even in Lonely Ghost, uh, the girl breaks into the house. So, yeah, they've been doing it since season one. Dollmaker. Everyone's mm-hmm. always breaking in. Interesting. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. If you want to bring this back up, you know. <laughs> yeah. Hey, remember yeah, remember that time you told me? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So you mentioned that DJ recognized the sense of humor in your work. Do you feel that that's a core part of Are You Afraid of the Dark? Because episodes like Full Moon and Ghastly Grinner, they have their horror elements, but they treat it with more levity and humor than you would think. So do you feel that humor is is really a part of what the show's about? Um, you know, it's interesting. The elements of those two episodes came, the humor elements came from the script because they were my scripts. And that was kind of like, that's pretty much my raison d'etre. Um, so I would say that those ones were funny because they were mine. I don't know that that the whole series has that same kind okay. of sense of humor. I think that's one of the reasons why those ones seem different. Um, mm-hmm. I tried when I was directing other people's scripts to make sure that there was some of that in there. Because uh, to me, it just leavens the the horror a little bit, you know, and takes the edge off it for uh, for an audience that, let's be honest, we're talking about nine to twelve year olds, so you don't want to be terrifying yeah. them, you know, too terribly much. Um, but um, you know, it, it was it's the, the the funny was part of me, so it became part of the shows that I did. Okay, even in episodes that you didn't write too. I mean, we just did tail the door unlocked and there's some silly stuff in that too and it's just it seems like the episodes that you got to direct have uh a certain charm to it that we've just come to appreciate especially we just got done watching the original 65 run of the show so your episodes really stand out in a good way oh uh, that's really kind of you to say i appreciate that um i mean i was given the keys to the kingdom there and it really shines through yeah i can tell i can totally tell that they were they were like so gracious to me across the board, the producers and the network, everybody they were so kind and so really gracious. And I, a lot of it, I learned so much on that series because, you know, I, I'd made one, two, I'd made three movies by then. And mm-hmm. the, uh, I'd made two horror pictures and a thriller. And I was still trying to figure out, you know, the language of it all. I, I, I knew instinctively a lot of the stuff that we did, but I was still learning. And there was a wonderful cinematographer we had in the show named Carol Ike and Carol taught me, so much about lenses and what what the lens means the language of of the glass you know and 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 all of that and and there was also the the fact we were shooting in montreal there's a very distinct sensibility to it they did a reboot of dark just recently you know up in here in Mm -hmm. vancouver yeah and i didn't see it so i can't comment on the show but but what the images that i saw this the photographs and things that people would send out the sensibility is quite different i think it was different because in Quebec, the production team we had there, the art designers and the production designers and so on, were obviously French. And there was a very French feeling to a lot of those episodes. Like just in the design of the clowns, for example, there's a sensibility that's quite different than, a, than an Americana sensibility. And that was another part of, I think, the uh, wonderful 
element of making that show there was it it was you know it was a it was a, a, a place that has its own identity montreal and quebec in general have their own identity and that identity rubbed up against the americana identity that we were bringing to it and i think it made for something really interesting so yeah well we'll definitely come back around to uh the grinner and full moon but one of the questions that Brandon and I had, along with Brett Wilson from Instagram, oh sure, we noticed that there was a lot of Ron Oil headstones that were floating around in other episodes, like in Old Man Corcoran and the Tale of the Dream Girl. Was that you? That was not me. That was our production designer. Because they would do products like in, on the store shelves and so on. With my name on them, Oliver Canned Goods and, and all this stuff. <laughs> and that there's a gigantic lock in um, Tale of the Renegade Virus. There's a, um, a a lock in there that's got my name on it as well. That was one of my favorite gags, actually, because we come out to the kid's bike and we see the lock in close-up and you think, oh, it's a we're close-up on the lock. And you just pull out a little bit and you go, no, it's a giant lock. Like I, I love gags like that. Like the, the Renegade Virus was visually one of the most fun things we did there because I was trying to figure out, you know, how to show the kid going into the computer and so on. And we did a bunch of green screen and we did a bunch of stuff on that episode that, that hadn't been done before. There was a lot of, ex- <laughs> actually the whole series, there was a lot of experimental camera stuff we got to do. It was really, really adventurous, I think, for a kid's show and very um, courageous of the network and the producers for uh, letting us do that stuff. You can totally tell. Like, it, it reads so well. I mean, as a 30-year-old man watching it who used to watch it as a kid, there's so much more to appreciate with the choices that you guys did and the, the liberties you took and everything. It It's all really fun to watch. Well, thank you. There's, um, I mean, Tale of the Full Moon, just to go back to that, there's, um, like, that's a fairly thinly veiled allegory about um, being gay because you basically have the uncle who's, you know, he's, it's, he's just another part of the family. You know, you, you kind of accept these yeah. things, you know. And that was, uh, I was really proud of that episode. And especially since, and at, okay, so there's a couple of things. At the end of that episode, when they're all wearing, you, one of you guys commented on uh, the, the clothing they're wearing at the end, the sort of like whatever the pattern was, that she's got the apron, he's got the shirt and so on. If you notice, all the fabric is the same. They're now a family because they're all wearing the same fabric clothing. They're Hawaiian shirts with uh-huh. the apron and the werewolf has a sleeve and the sleeve is the same fabric. So they're all part of the family now. I love that. Like that honestly it was easily one of my favorite episodes from season two. Oh, yeah. I mean the mom the mom alone. She's great, isn't she? She's Fantastic. so incredible. Yeah, that's my mom. That was like my mom and <laughs> I was gonna ask if you got inspiration from someone. Oh yeah, no, it's totally my mom. Well that whole movie is She's... like just nothing but stuff I love. And and my mom was like that. She wasn't quite as camp as that lady and she certainly uh, didn't dress that way, but she like her she just she had a love of life that was like that. So and um, when they talk about the man from across the street, his last name was Anchors, and which mm-hmm. is how you know he and his brother had the jazz duet Anchors Away. And <laughs> Anchors, of course, is Evelyn Anchors, who was the lady in the Wolfman, the original Wolfman movie. Oh, that's awesome. Okay. There's a bunch of stuff like that in that episode that, um, I mean, it's clearly rear window influence. It was obviously that sort of nods to Hitchcock all over the place. But then there were other little little things like that that we sort of stuck in to, uh, to make it fun. But I remember driving home from the studio in Montreal, we'd finished the, the last day of shooting on that episode. And the last shot we shot was Dominic Zempronia playing the boy, Dom pulling the mm-hmm. curtain back and the full moon being outside the curtain. And we'd had a problem with uh, the backdrop or something. And one of our grips said, I know how to fix this. And he just, he, he did a thing, he fixed it, it was great. 
And I was driving home thinking about how everybody had teamed up on that movie, on that show, because everybody, the whole crew were so stoked to be doing that one because it was the first one that I wrote. And they were so supportive. It was amazing. So we're driving home. I'm driving back to the hotel. And I was trying to think over my head, what shots did I miss? What pieces did I get right? You know, because you're like second guessing yourself constantly. And Mm -hmm. I'm going along and I realized that I got everything I wanted. Like every single moment (laughs) was was there. And right up to the silly attack the cat lady head thing over the fence. Like that was ridiculous. But it it had to be ridiculous. So it was uh, all that stuff, you know. And I thought, okay, I, I got it. And I literally started crying in the car because it was the first time creatively that I had got every single thing that I felt that I wanted in that piece. Like it was a true expression of what y- you could do. And it was really amazing. It was like the first time I actually felt like a filmmaker. That's beautiful. As a kid growing up, I didn't remember this one. And I don't know if it just didn't play very often on Nickelodeon, but I feel like as a 30-year-old man, I appreciate it way more than I would have as a kid, too. So I know a lot of shows that would bring in, like, adult humor and things like that into it so, you know, dad and mom can enjoy it while they're watching Snick with their kids. So did you make it with the adult in mind as well? Um, I'd like to say that I did, but I I, I made that episode for me. I, you know, I was like, this is for me. I just wanted to do this. And I, I imagine that the adults would get it because I kind of like that multi-level stuff. I think that's important yeah. to do in that world. Um, but yeah, I can see why people wouldn't love it because it's um, it's very camp, obviously. And it's it takes uh, – th- there's a moment when Huey's in the bathtub with his goggles on. Oh, oh yeah. That's the best part. Okay. Yes. So I did, a, I did a take of that where just to totally mess with people's heads, I did a take where we pull back and reveal that Jed is in the bedroom right next door to Huey's bath. So you see we had a split screen on it. And it's not really a split screen. It's actually the sets built back to back. And I actually had Jed get off the bed and go around the corner and finish the phone call and say, towel off. And then Huey looks at him and goes, huh? And then we just cut and go to the next scene. And I did that in one take. And people were like, you can't do that. You can't. I said, I know, but this is that particular episode. Maybe we could, but I'm glad we didn't. But it was the kind of thing that, you know, you can try anything in that one. So just to like go back to that question I had with the Ron Oil headstones, in season five, we had two phone calls. One was in Station 109.1, and the other was in Mystical Mirror, where they're talking to a Ron on the phone. And call me Bryce Lee from Instagram, and I want to know, were they talking to you, Ron? Oh, yeah, probably. If it was, if it was, uh, <laughs> if it was uh, the radio station one, that would have been Goose was probably talking to me on the phone. So, yeah, that's likely. Uh, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, because it was Ryan Gosling's character and then Laura Bertram's character yeah. was also talking to a Ron. Yeah, yeah, they were... Uh... <laughs> they're talking to you. They were talking to me. Yeah, they were talking to me. <laughs> we knew it. You can't fool us, Ron. Uh, that, that, now, it's funny because the radio station one with, uh, with Gilbert Gottfried, Gilbert and I worked together on something else, and I love him. And Gilbert just, was a stand-up comedian, too, and I used to bump into him when I was doing magic. So mm-hmm. I kind of knew him for a long time. And then... Um, Goose, that was his first episode like that with us. We did so we did that one, and then we did um, the camera one. He was in that one too, yeah. uh, Ryan, and um, it, we stayed friends obviously over the years. He was best man at my wedding, and you know, oh, we, we've that's awesome. been that's pals so cool. ever since. He's great. He's a great, great, great guy. He's turned into a, I'm very proud of him. He turned into a fine man and a wonderful father and a great husband, and and mm-hmm. not a bad actor. So you know, yeah, he's been in some things. He's definitely a household name. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. 
when we, we had it up uh, when I was living in, in Los Angeles, when he first came down to L.A., uh, he shocked up in my guest suite and uh, the, the condo I had was this sort of like two level thing with a loft and so on. So he had his own wing and he had his own balcony and all this stuff. And at uh, nighttime, he'd get up sometimes he'd go and he'd play his guitar on his balcony at night and the downstairs neighbors would complain. And so we would get like notes occasionally stuck in the door saying, uh, listen, we're trying to get us, you know, do you mind not playing your guitar at midnight or whatever time it was, you know? So then he would go up in the lot, but they're still complaining. And I often think back now and wonder if those people downstairs were going, so we used to complain about Ryan Gosling playing his guitar, you know? Speaking of Ryan Gosling and the episode of Goosebumps that he did, Say Cheese and Die, um, Richard McMillan plays the man with the cursed camera in both episodes Curious Camera and Say Cheese and Die. He does. Was that a massive coincidence or no, that's me, something to do with that? That's me directing both episodes and going, I'm just, let's get the same guy. <laughs> it'll be That's a, good. You should have got Gilbert Godfrey for everything. <laughs> yeah, you know, it'll be, it'll be fun crossover and, uh, and you know, people who follow that sort of thing will remember it. It's funny because Goosebumps was obviously came after Dark, but the sensibility of Goosebumps was somewhat sunnier. I think those shows were sunnier and, and not quite so... Not quite so grim because dark could dark could have some dark endings, but um, goosebumps yeah, they, yeah. they tended yeah. to try to keep it more of a happy ending. But um, they're both shows that they stand alone quite nicely, but they're also uh, most people who watch one watch the other one. So okay, original Apex Predator on Instagram wanted to know: Did you have anything to do with the Midnight Society or choosing who was in the Midnight Society? Or was that all DJ McHale? No, that was all DJ. Um, he okay. did. Yeah, he he did all that. Um, he directed most of those, although I think in a few seasons into it, I think uh, Jacques Leberge, who had been my first AD for the first season, I think he directed some of them. And mm-hmm. I'm proud of the fact that my continuity, uh, a script supervisor on uh, the first couple of seasons, Lorette LeBlanc, she ended up directing as well. Um, she directed an episode of the show because we were big believers in, you know, we have this really great car. Let's let more than just us drive it. And mm-hmm. I've always been quite keen on the notion of, of encouraging diversity in our directors and you know it's it was important to me to have Lorette. Lorette uh, used to refer to herself as my Alma so she'd said that's a reference to Alma Hitchcock so she had a chair with her name on it and underneath it it said Alma Hitchcock but yeah that's no cool. DJ did, cool. did, did all that. All right that makes sense okay so we noticed that there's a lot of references to Zebo. at least one episode in every season Zebo's either in it or he was talked about in it and in season five, there were some ghastly Grinner references as well. And those are the episodes that everybody seems to remember and they really focus on. Did you guys know that Zebo was going to be such a big thing? Or was that just something that you liked a lot so that you moved forward, just put the references in? Um, that's a good question. I, uh, DJ is terrified of clowns and terrified. Uh, of, okay. Oh, my God. Terrified of clowns. So that's why I got all the clown shows because he couldn't do it. Um, <laughs> I tend to get the boy shows. He usually got the girl shows. So uh, it was uh, okay. Zebo was obviously in that that uh, laughing in the dark episode. And then it's it was just more fun because you sort of thought, well, we created this universe, and it made sense uh, logically because the stories were being told by the Midnight Society. So it made sense that those kids would reference characters that they'd referenced before or that their friends had referenced before and they would bring it back. So in the context of the story, it made sense that they were talking, because they're telling the tale, it would make sense <laughs> that those characters would come back. I love that. Like That's one of my favorite parts of the whole series. And it's something that I didn't really pick up on as, as a kid watching it for the first time, but 
you know, doing this. And I mean, it takes me like two hours to do the episode notes because I, I go in and get every detail. But yeah, seeing that now, I just really appreciate it. That's well, really cool. and and I loved having Sardo come back because uh, Richard. Yes. Uh, 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 yeah. Yeah. Richard and I um, met on that show and we've been wonderful friends for, you know, God, 30 years. And I brought Richard in on, um, he was in my Dennis the Menace Christmas movie in Montreal. And then we did, um, I did a Beethoven, you know, the dog, the big dog. Mm-hmm. I did a Beethoven yeah. movie for Universal. We shot out in Halifax and I flew Richard out for that too. And he's great. And so it's, it's great. I love having, it's not just in the show itself where the characters recur. Like a lot of us stayed friends over the years and we all, cause it was a, it was a very big growing curve for a lot of us. And we all stayed close and we all try to we, we try to work with people like that again if you can you know cast wise so so cool yeah i was going to ask more about richard dumont too james over on instagram too wanted to know how much of sardo's character was richard dumont and how much of it was your directing since you did most of the episodes with sardo uh it was 50 50 no question okay. about it yep uh, richard and i said how far can we go with this guy like how can't we make this guy you know <laughs> that's my favorite yep. okay um and that's really that's what and we would just we would push each other to go and go and go. And we'd occasionally get like, you know, a, a note. It'd say, can we maybe just tone him down just a little <laughs> bit? Like, no, never. <laughs> That's great. I love it. Yeah, Richard was great. He was, uh, he was a good guy. MarvelDude23 on Instagram. He wants to know more about the tale of the frozen ghost, which was the one with uh, Melissa Joan Hart. Oh, yeah. There's a scene. It's, it's a, a lot different from any other scene in all the show where the main character, Charles, falls in the mud. Yep. And you have him uh, fall in the mud like three times. Did you have direction with that? Like, why did you guys do that for that episode? Uh, I think just to really emphasize the fact that he was going to be filthy. Like, okay. yeah, you mean because we did it. We, I, try, I don't really remember exactly. I think it was, um, did we just do three cuts or something? And like he fell in the mud, yeah. then fell in the mud, fell in the mud. So he yeah. repeat the action yeah um yeah i forget why i did that actually it just it seemed to make sense at the moment there's an interesting effect <laughs> in there um that we did in camera uh where you see the ghost's footprints on the ground when he's yeah. walking across in the mud or whatever it is and you see the imprints there all we did was lock the camera and have the <laughs> kid walk across and then when we picked him up to come out of the shot and then just do this uh in post we just did a slow dissolve from the first shot to the last shot and it, so it it wasn't a, any kind of visual effect other than just a camera dissolve. I love that. Like as an editor for the podcast, when I can figure out new ways to do something, it's like the best feeling. So I just assume you guys had that feeling throughout the entire thing. So the whole run. It's of the really show. true. I mean, we would come up with it with stuff. Uh, Frozen Ghost has um, has a shot that I cribbed from Sam Raimi um, from Evil Dead, where the camera goes across the yard and goes up yeah. into the window. Yeah, Brandon made mention of that when we watched it. Yeah, yeah. and that's just the. Um, that's just the ghost, you know, the ghost approaching sort of thing. Um, but I remember telling them and saying, well, you know, we could have got a steady cam, but I was like, nah, steady cam's cheating. Let's just get the yeah. two by four and put the camera on it and do that. So we did. Perfect. Yeah. You can actually get stuff with a, with a two by four on a camera uh, that's that you can't get with a steady cam. And I, I love when I when I do use steady cam, which is not all the time, but when I do use it, I, I love using it because it can give me stuff I can't get. But there's something about having the camera, you know, scooting along right on the ground level and then flying up over something and then around that you can't do with a steady. And it's um, it's fun. It's a really fun way to do that. Cool. I think we should talk about the Ghastly Grinner. Oh, yeah. Because like, like I said earlier, that's an episode that everybody remembers. I mean, I certainly remember it. And 
I wanted to know, as I'm sure a lot of people do, where did your inspiration for the Ghastly Grinner come from? Um, I was going to write another episode of the show, and I was sitting in Montreal, and I was trying to think of what to do. And I'm, you know, obviously, it's a well-known fact that I'm a huge horror nerd. So I was probably reading Fangoria <laughs> or something, and there's likely something about comics in it. I think there was, for a while, Fango did a section, and Fango had a thing about um, horror comics. And okay. I think, oh, no, no, you know what it was? Oh, now I remember um, I had received as a as a gift. Um, somebody gave me the whole uh, the Bound collection of Tales from the Crypt, the big oh. Bound collection of all those comics. And I remember going through it and just like loving it because oh my god, best gift ever. And I'm reading this uh, thing, yeah. thumbing through. I still have them, thumbing through it. And and I remember looking at one and thinking, geez, what would happen if one of these things came to life? And that's sort of what started it. And then you figure out the mechanics of it and how it would work and so on and so forth. And I just, I wrote the script pretty fast. I think I wrote it in like six hours. And um, the characters just sort of popped out of my head. Uh, the girl, uh, Hooper Piccolero, um, you may oh, not. She's the best. She's the best, right? So she's, yeah. based, she's based on a little girl I knew when I was six years old. Our next door neighbor is Sharon Hatch. <laughs> and she had that sweater. And like she dressed like her mother dressed her every day. Cool. And, and she had those glasses and everything. And I loved her. And. And I always thought someday I'll, that character is going to stay with me. So it just came unbidden. The name, all of it, just suddenly came out of my head sitting there. I was writing this thing because I had to write it fast. And, oh, okay, who picked it out? Great name. And I don't know where or why, but there it was. And occasionally you're aware of the fact as a creative person, which I struggle to be, you're aware of the fact that that you are a conduit. And um, it that all of the things in your life come together and give you Hooper Piccolero, for example. And there was that's, a band in Seattle for years, and they may still be with us, I'm not sure, called Hooper Piccolero. <laughs> and I didn't know this until somebody told me one day on the internet, because the internet happened, right? And, and so suddenly all these things mm -hmm. happen. And they said, yeah, there's a band, you should uh, check them out. And the music's great, you know, and I, I sent a note along. I said, I can't tell you how honored I am. And the guy said, we were so afraid someone's going to catch us someday and like give us a cease and desist. And I said, no, nah, man, you're good to go. It's an honor. So, That's so cool. It really is. It really is. And that whole show was like that. Like the, the, the girl who, um, who owned the comic book shop, um, I loved her. The framing in that show, mm -hmm. uh, camera-wise, was all very specific to sort of anime uh, framing and, and, and basically comic book framing, essentially. Um, so we, you know, I, I sat the Tales from the Crypt books down with my cinematographer on that one. I forget who it was by then. It wasn't Carol anymore. It was somebody else. And uh, we went through the comics and I said, see, like we can frame half her face in the foreground and put him in the background and, and do all that kind of comic book, sort of Jack Kirby kind of uh, Bernie Wrightson framing, you know? And we did yeah. that with that episode, which I think is why it kind of works because it feels like a, like a comic book itself. It definitely feels like a one-of-a-kind episode, I yeah, think. Stylistically, that one really stands out. It's Well, I'm flattered by that. Thank you. I, I, I love doing it. I, I, um, when they were going to do the reboot of Dark, they're also doing a movie of Are You Afraid of the Dark. Paramount yeah. asked, um, they sent a note to my agent to see if they could buy the rights to the Ghastly Grinner, because I own them. Because <laughs> that's the only good thing about writing a script under the Writers Guild of Canada contracts, which we did up there, was that after five years, the material ownership goes back to you. So okay. I own that character. And so they came to us to see if, if I'd sell it. And I was like, ah, I don't know. I kind of like him. Maybe I'll go there someday again. I don't know if I'll sell it. And Sandy said, well, they're offering you $1,000. And I said, oh, well, then you can tell them the fuck off. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
You know, spoilers to Brandon, because Brandon hasn't seen the, the third part of the reboot, and I, I know you said you hadn't seen it either. They do make mention of Gasly Grinner in it. Oh, that's good. Yeah. As long as they don't show him, that's fine. <laughs> nope, they just say, uh, you know, at the end, they're all by the campfire, and the kid's like, oh, I call this story the return of the Gasly Grinner. And I was like, ah, look at you. <laughs> yeah, nice try, kid. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I think that might be about all the questions we have today. I appreciate the interest in something that, you know, we did a thousand years ago. And we had a <laughs> down at a, at a horror convention in Long Beach, I guess it was, um, a couple of years ago when they had the 25th anniversary of Are You Afraid of the Dark? They, there was a bunch of great stuff. It's a horror convention, you know, so it's, it's fun You're going around and looking at stuff. And, and uh, my husband's more into, um, he's not so much a horror. He likes vampire he likes like, like mm-hmm. uh, uh, Anita Blake vampire books. He loves those. So he's more into that sort of end of the sort of romantic vampire stuff. Whereas I'm all like, yeah, we're, show me this, the zombies and the severed heads. Um, oh, so yeah. we're, yeah. So we were there um, at this thing and the, the, the convention people had come to DJ and myself and Steve and asked if we would like to attend this event um, as their guests and speak at a, you know, a little, conference of, uh, of fans of are you for the dark so we're like yeah sure why not so we drove down you know and i hadn't seen dj in years and so we get there and uh figuring there might be you know what 105 maybe 150 people 200 people maybe in this in this little auditorium we go in there's like five thousand people it was crazy and <laughs> you know, awesome. we, we walked out on the stage and it was like you know it's like we were spinal tap it was crazy and we you know this <laughs> roaring cheers and hey and and then every time you'd talk about an episode they'd like clap and hoot and every episode it was amazing it was nice to to know people still like the shows and that they uh, are are cognizant it's funny because a lot of this stuff you know when you're in the business we call show um you (laughs) you have a gig and you you know you go you do the gig and then you carry on with your life and you go wait for the next gig and so forth and so on and you kind of forget this stuff and there was a, there's been a gulf in time between the making of these things and then the resurgence in interest over the last few years of this stuff. And it's obviously generational, you know, because a bunch of those kids now grow up to become adults. But it's really flattering and, and a little heartening, if you will, to think that, that people still like something that you did all those years ago. And I think we did it for the right reasons when we did it. Um, I mean, obviously it was a gig and it was we were well paid, well compensated and well taken care of, but we did it. But the truth was that we did it with a great deal of love, extraordinary amounts of, of love because we all love what we were doing. We all love the genre very much. And we had a great crew. We had a great team of people creatively in front of and behind the cameras. And, and anybody who would come onto the set, any of the guest stars or anything, were just blown away by how much everybody loved each other on those shows. And, and it was just, I think that comes across as well, that they were, I, I like to think that they were crafted with a great deal of affection. And yeah. hopefully that, that plays even today. Yeah, when I talked to uh, Eddie Robinson, he said the same thing. He got um, he got a lot of advice for acting and everything from everybody, uh, Aaron Tagger. Mm-hmm. He said it was amazing. So, yeah, I could totally see it. And a lot of our generation, you know, being Brandon, we're 31 years old, and uh, there's a lot of fans. And, uh, you know, I go on Twitter every day, and I encourage people to watch it. I think it's something that everybody should see. It's it's not just, you know, scary stories. It's so much more than that. I mean, you're seeing all these camera tricks and, and directors doing new things and stuff, and it's perfect. I mean, 
That's all. That's perfect. Yeah, I'm watching these shows for the first time. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, I I don't have the nostalgia for the show, but I'm watching it for the first time with fresh eyes, and I I appreciate it a lot. I appreciate the stories, the horror. I appreciate the film homages. And, you know, I really began to recognize your style. And when I would see your name in the credits, I would be like, oh, great. This is a Ron Oil joint. This is awesome. <laughs> That's fun. I appreciate that, guys. It's uh, it's it's wonderful to, to know people like them and, and are still talking about them. It's, it's great. And you do, again, you, every once in a while in your career, you get to do something that that comes out exactly the way you saw it in your head. And I've had, I've had a few of those since then and I've always appreciated them, but none of them I think had the impact that the very first one did. So it was great. That's awesome. We so appreciate you spending time with us, Ron. I mean, I never in a million years thought we would ever have like you on the show or anybody that we've had so far, really. I mean, we, we started this thing and I was just like, Brandon, there's this show, you got to watch it. And why don't we just talk about it and throw it on the internet? You know? So having you here today is really a momentous occasion it's for us, really I think. Great. Well, it's been great talking to you guys. And I, I, as I say, I, I so much appreciate the interest in it and uh, and also the affection you have for it. Because uh, God knows we loved it doing it. So it's good to hear people still love watching it. It shows. And I think that's one thing that really makes the show stand up today and, and makes it cool. so watchable. But i th- i I've, I've been up all night you guys i gotta get working on this uh screenplay ron uh check your emails i'm gonna be cold sending you everything <laughs> ah, <I got>. um, <laughs> where can people find you on twitter instagram i don't know if you want them on your facebook but i'm, <laughs> I'm on uh, facebook. <laughs> i think i already have five thousand friends on facebook i'm on twitter as hrh oliver one because i'm also a knight which a lot of people don't know and uh, oh, okay. I'm on Instagram as Ron Oliver, and on Facebook you can uh, come and follow me on Facebook too. Awesome! All right, I'm going to be watching some of your movies. By the way, I mean those Hallmark movies. I'm going to I'm going to get to them. We have uh, uh, one we did la- talking about something like Full Moon being this complete vision thing. Christmas at the Plaza, I did last year at the Plaza Hotel in New York City, and it also is of that ilk in that it's everything I imagined Ooh. I wanted it to be. It became. And okay. I got to stock the pond with all my favorite New Yorkers. And it was just, it's That's that cool. kind of one. So yeah, Christmas at the Plaza. And right now we're making a timeless Christmas also for Hallmark. It'll be on TV this, uh, this Christmas. 